Well, good day, night, morning, or middle of the night to you. It's the Nerdist Podcast number 294. Uh, just leaving Nashville, which was an amazing bunch of shows. Uh, I really like Nashville. Then we went out and saw some honky-tonk late at night. Everyone else was drunk. I was drunk on the fizzy parts of the club soda. Uh, but great such great music. It's just so obvious to say that there's great music in Nashville, but there's fucking great music in Nashville. Now I'm heading to Chicago, uh, where everyone will tell me that I'm a moron for not going to a different deep dish pizza place than the one that I end up going to, which I haven't figured out what it is yet, but I know in the eyes of everyone I talk to, that'll be the wrong one, and I should have gone somewhere else, so I'm looking forward to that, but also uh, doing the shows at Zany's on the 13th and 14th, uh, Thursday and Friday of December in downtown Chicago, and then Zany's in Rosemont on the 15th, so I believe the website for that is zanies. Uh, no, it's chicago.zanies.com and then maybe rosemont.zanies.com but anyway, uh, come to those shows, they'll be super fun, uh, there's pictures and hugs and comedy jokes and it's a good time it is a very good time, I, I promise you they will be had by you, the good times I'd like to thank stamps.com for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast it's the holidays and you're mailing a lot of crap and you and this is really the time you don't want to go to the post office. It is I think you would I think you would rather have a medical ass loosening than to go to the post office during the holiday season uh, because that's kind of what it feels like. They do not give you anesthetic at the post office. So rather than go through that just get a Stamps.com account, uh, print all your postage out, the mail carrier uh, will pick it up from your place, uh, make sure and give him a nice Christmas present, and throw him a fiver or a tenner or, uh, or whatever, whatever, just something, something that says, hey, thanks for delivering the mail. Thank you. Uh, because they do have to do that every day, rain or shine, except for holidays and Sundays. But uh, Stamps.com will print out the exact postage you need. So use it. Go to Stamps.com right now before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the page. Uh, and then enter the promo code NERDIST for a bonus offer with a bunch of awesome stuff. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. This episode is Judd Apatow, who I was very excited came on several months ago. We had a Twitter exchange where he said... Uh, you know, my coming on your podcast is inevitable. I don't know if he meant that in a positive or negative way, but it doesn't matter because he came on. Uh, he has uh, the new movie that is coming out December 21st is This Is 40, which uh, was uh, was a, a fun movie and scary if you're close to that age. I'm not. I'm 29 forever. The fuck do I care? So, uh, but other than that, uh, Judd was a great guy. Not just, not, not, not just sort of a... A, a very John Hughesian figure in our uh, modern culture, but also a guy who uh, is a huge comedy nerd, huge comedy nerd, uh, like like one of us kind of comedy nerds. So uh, it was great to sit down and chat with him. Here we go, the Nerds Podcast, episode number two ninety four with Judd Apatow. Apatow, Apatow for destruction. Oh, words, they're fun. Now entering. Nerdist.com No. Yes, yes, I mean yes. No, I know how to work this. This little podcasty corner of it, but the rest of this shit, I don't, I don't have any idea. 
Uh, all right. I've already started recording. Right. That's how it works. I need headphones of some sort? Nah, they don't work over there. Okay. I'm sorry. This thing keeps Do you want to leave? slowly falling apart. Do you want to leave? In a rage. I don't, I don't blame you. Jump through that. Leave and then punch <laughs> Matt on your way out and be like, how could you get me into this? And then hit him. How do I know how loud I am? You're good. You're good. <laughs> Although, the closer you are to the mic, the better. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Is that how sound works? I don't know. I don't know. Jonah, 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 Jonah. <laughs> Judd, it's it's really fantastic to have you on the podcast. Has it started? This is it, man. This is it? Okay. Yeah. And we're almost done. Thank you very much for being here. I've got to get into podcast mode. What is that? Uh, I don't know. It's a very hyper alert mode. Is it? I just imagine a lot of young men listening to this in their beds. Mm-hmm. What are they doing? I don't know. They're reading comic books. And, and listening to words? And, and listening to words. <laughs> That's hard. you got to give it up for those kids in their beds. Sometimes being on a podcast, though, is a little like being in writer's room mode, where it's like, all right, got to make sure all the cylinders are firing. I need exactly. to catch every bit and be able to add information at any turn. You don't want to be the worst one. You have hundreds. No. And <laughs> let's be honest. The expectations for you are incredibly high. I feel it. I feel it. Believe me. I, I, I got a good night's rest for this. There's a lot of pressure. Uh, I hope Smart. you had some protein this morning. Oh, Kyle brought smart waters. What's wrong with my dumb waters aren't enough for you, Kyle? It's really dumb, the waters. Thank you I appreciate that. Um, But there's so many things to talk about. I mean, I know you've done Marin's podcast, so you already talked a lot about your... uh, But I I really do want to talk about uh, that you got to grow up in a comedy environment, which I'm so jealous of, because that is all I wanted when I was a kid, was to just be be able to live in a comedy club, basically. Well, that's all I I wanted to do. I I was uh, a super comedy nerd. I only notice it more and more... uh, by the day when I realized I, I think I outnerd everybody. I I uh, I used to watch Merv Griffin and Dinah Shore show every day. And back when Michael Keaton was a stand-up comic. Oh yeah. yes. You know, just the, the late seventies. And I just thought that seemed like the coolest world ever. There was still the remnants of you know Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. on all of those shows, but yet the beginning of like Leno and Jeff Altman uh, and Seinfeld as the comics. And yeah. I just couldn't have uh, been more uh, into it, and then when I had the opportunity to be a dishwasher at a comedy club, I thought, "All right, now I get to like see what's going on." And then I realized I was in the in the kitchen, so I couldn't <laughs> see what was going on, and so I I I, I became a busboy at Eastside Comedy Club back when people were doing cocaine, and it was like the height of stand up and. Uh, it, it was a very exciting time to be 15 years old. At a <laughs> Robin Williams was doing 27-hour <laughs> sets. Uh, yeah, I think... Did you ever read The Outliers, the Malcolm Gladwell book? I have skimmed it. Okay. That's <laughs> skim- Who reads the whole thing? Skimming no is read the whole thing. It's a book, thing. Chris. What? I'll, it's I'll listen to him on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Explain it to me. Outliers is the very... That's my best Malcolm Gladwell. It was really just me. That's all about putting in 10,000 hours to be good at something. Well, not only 10,000 hours, but just sort of um, the... You know, when you sort of look at guys like, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, any of the tech guys, they were exactly at the right age. Mm-hmm when the environment accidentally happened to them and they were the right people in the right environment. And so, you know, I I feel like we all got very lucky to be at the right age for the comedy boom of the late 70s and all of the 80s to be able to to feed that kind of voracious comedy appetite that we had. Yeah. Well, I think it, 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 there was that moment, I guess, early 80s where it exploded and then it just oversaturated where there were so many stand-up comedy shows. Yeah. Happening, and I, I I did an enormous amount of 
of those shows. And I was a terrible stand-up comedian. And I was on Evening at the Improv and Carolyn's Comedy Hour. Comic Strip Live. I've looked at some of the tapes. I'm awful. Really? You think so? So? <laughs> so if I got on... Everybody got on. The doors were wide open, but it was great to to be in that moment. And and as a young guy in that moment, what was exciting about it was when me and you know Adam Sandler, I was living with him at the time, and we would go to the Improv. It was still like Leno coming in at the height of like Leno as right. stand up and Seinfeld before the TV show when he was just the greatest stand up ever. Right yeah. and. And then Robin Williams would come in, and all these people would just rip the house down. And it felt very exciting uh, in a way that now it feels a little more commercial, maybe. Sure. I mean, back when the club was packed and the bar was packed, and not only were people doing great stand-up, but there was like a whole... People were getting laid yeah. off of it. It was like a scene, you know? There was like a whole... like. like Bruce Willis and Alec Baldwin were still at the bar, yeah. you know, hanging out. So, like, uh, the bar was actually just a place to, just a bar, too. Like, you would go and just hang yeah. out there. The improv was, like, a cool place to go, yeah. separate from the shows. And so I was a young guy. I, I took uh, no part in any of what was actually happening there. I was just trying not to get kicked out, and I was just, like, the MC. But it was pretty incredible, the feeling of creativity there. I, I But I don't know if that's just nostalgia, like, if... People feel like the comedy sellers like that now or something. Well, it, might, it probably is. It probably is for them. It probably is. But I don't think that lessens what the experience was. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, my, my comedy scene really hit more in the 90s and like the Largo scene and, yeah. and you know, Death Ray and UCB. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, to me, I think of that as all of yeah. all the special time. I kind of missed out on the I missed out on the club heyday mm -hmm. of comedy. But I. Uh, and 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 I I've many times have I seen the 15th annual Young Comedian special, <laughs> uh, and and most of those people have been on the show too. Kindler and or actually Janine's never been on. No, uh, Ray but Romano, Ray, Bill Ray Bellamy, Bellamy and Ray Romano and me and uh, I remember I remember when we taped that in Arizona in '92, and that's so that's 20 years ago. And just then <laughs> thinking, Ray Romano is like the funniest guy ever. Who is who is he? Yeah, I did. I, I just had heard his name around, you know, a New York comic, and then we watched him that night and thought, "He's ready. <laughs> <laughs> Great things are about to happen for him." He was so much better. Than well, I, well, he but he was a road guy though. Like mm -hmm. he was a hardcore. He was a road warrior. But he, I also, I always felt better about, um, you know, about not really starting to hit anything until a little bit later into my thirties because Ray was like thirty four when he did mm -hmm. that. Yeah. yeah. And so that, you know, it wasn't like, uh, oh, you got to be 22. Like, no great comic really, really hits it, most of them, until they're in their 40s. So that's that's always kind of comforting. truly great. People always told me it takes seven, eight years to find yourself. Yes. I was just kind of getting okay at seven, eight years when I when I stopped. And I remember when the whole Largo scene started uh, at the Diamond Club, Dave Rath, <laughs> what was one of the first alternative gigs in LA and Jack Black uh, uh, and Kyle Gass. I think that was like the earliest um, Tenacious D performances. Will Ferrell was doing a, an act with two other guys. I forgot what it was. Uh, there was just a, a lot of people just beginning to experiment on stage in a less pressurized situation and not just a, a crowd filled with you know drunk people you know hitting on their dates the whole time yeah but i had stopped right when it started and uh i i miss it i kind of wish that i could have kept going but but i just got 
busy because we started doing the Ben Stiller sketch show and mm-hmm. it just ate my whole life. So I, I had to give up performing. Yeah. Oh, I knew uh, Rob Cohen who worked on that uh, yes, show Cohen as well. Dino Stamatopoulos Dino! Dino. Uh, was there. Uh, and yeah, there's tons of great people came through there. And right when it ended was when I think a lot of the coffee house scene was taking off. I kind of didn't buy into it at first. People, I remember going with Colin Quinn to Big and Tall Bookstore and they were doing stand up upstairs. And I thought, who wants to do stand up in a bookstore <laughs> for like 18 It was histers? It was like survival. I, I, I liken that period of comedy. And now I wouldn't trade it, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything because I feel like the comedy boom. A lot of people were like, comedy's dead in the 90s, but I think it forced a lot of creativity, and obviously yes. people had to perform places. And I, I sort of liken that period to, like, if a vampire has to eat rats on a ship to survive, yeah. like, that's sort of, like, it's it's just all of the survival bubbling up of people needing to do comedy wherever, in laundromats and bookstores yeah. and bars and and, you know, the, look how many great people came out of that scene. So it was good. Well, I mean, I think the road scene and the improv was really based on just pleasing Bud Friedman. And so you were trying to make them like you so you could work the improv and work their road gigs. So when everyone started working at laundromats and bookstores, it, it wasn't about pleasing this one person who could make your whole career by giving you stage time, which got all the TV shows to look at you. And then people could be really creative because you could bomb at this one place, and that place may not even exist next week. It was like that one person yeah. could control your entire mm. yeah. career. We were all, I mean, it took me years to convince Bud Friedman to let me work at the, <laughs> at the improv. It was like a big deal if if uh, you got his blessing. He was a tough monocle to crack. It yeah, was, it was. Uh, <laughs> Bud Friedman. Didn't you, uh, did you play an interview that you did with Seinfeld on Marin's show? I played a couple of minutes of it. I People should listen to that. I interviewed him when I was uh, about 15 years old. I came out uh, to visit my grandmother, and I used to call people and ask them to do interviews with me for my high school radio station, and I, and I, I usually didn't even air them. I just wanted to meet people. I was like, how Genius. can I get like someone to talk to me and tell me how to do this? So I, I went out here, and he li- had this little apartment right below Sunset Boulevard, like around where the whiskey is. Mm-hmm. And I get there. And clearly, I'm not a professional radio person. But I, I presented myself as such on the phone and with his publicist. And then, like, a child shows up <laughs> with a gigantic... Is your dad coming anytime soon, buddy? I mean, the tape recorder literally was from the AV squad. It could not have been larger. <laughs> it had the label on it, but big, school. green, you know, thing from the early 70s. And I remember, you know, the look in his eye... When he just realizes, oh, I have to talk to this kid now. He's at my house. I wish I could tell him to leave. You're an early I'm podcaster. Man. You were an early adopting podcaster. I, it was. It was. It was. It was early uh, long form interview. And then his apartment was just like empty. I don't know if he had been there for years or moved in that day. There was just there was no decorations on the wall. It was just. Don't he, you? He's he was little, there to write comedy. He yeah. was not there to do anything but be a comedian. Don't you feel yeah. like he's a little bit of a comedy Dexter? Like mm-hmm. a little bit of a. There's like such method and everything's yeah. got a that. I I totally could see that. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. There was. It wasn't like he was about to really work hard to find the best couch for it. I've purchased five of the same suits so I don't have to expend any thought on yeah. changing clothes every Jones day. Jones is like that. When I go over to his apartment, it's just like, do you just, it's like bare minimum, just like couch, bed, TV. I have my version of that where I'll, I'll go to the Gap or J. Crew and buy like 11 polo shirts <laughs> in every color so I never have to think about it. And, and then he sat and talked to me for 40 minutes and just basically taught me how to 
write a joke. I mean, he 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 went through uh, you know some material that he was working on and explained his process. Oh shit! You've got to put that out. You you don't you must have. Well, I liked it when he was then the bit which I remember. The bit was that he was saying. Uh, He's saying, uh, you know, right now I'm doing a bit about this guy who catches a bullet between his teeth. And I realize I don't remember this guy's name. And he's got to be thinking, what do I have to do to get you to remember my name? And he goes, and how do you start this? Do you start, do you just have a friend throw a raisin at you? How do you build up to it? And he just walked through it and he hadn't finished uh, writing it. And he just couldn't have been nicer. And then a year later, I asked him if he would do it again. And I and he said yes and let me interview him for an hour at Caroline's in New York. So, you know, those moments with people who were very giving of their time, uh, you know, you never forget it for the rest of your life. He didn't have to talk to me and tell me anything. There was, there was no upside for him. He was just a, a nice guy from Long Island. I was from Long Island. He, uh, so he, he gave me that gift. And so what was it, at what point did you decide to transition or did just the work transition for you that you became writer, producer? Well, I, I would do stand-up, and I was, the, I, I was such a big comedy fan that I was able to observe myself and be disappointed. I just, I, 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 I understood where I was at. I could almost yeah. see the progression of what I would be, and I was a big fan of, 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 of Seinfeld's and, and, and Bill Maher was somebody that I really, you know, looked up to. And I thought, you know, the best I'm going to be is like 62% as good as Bill Maher. And, and, and he's already great and we don't need another person like that. And I didn't have any life experience. I didn't have some Stephen Wright approach to stand up that would reinvent the form. Sure. And I was annoyed with myself. I just was I just didn't have a, a take on it other than, you know, some decent observations that I uh, looking back weren't even decent. So, uh when writing opportunities started popping up, uh you know, I would write you know, the Grammys or, or you know, for Shandling or I started writing Roseanne's act. I just took it as a, a sign from the universe that you're supposed to be behind the scenes because uh, that's where all the work seems to be. I coming. didn't know you wrote for Roseanne. Uh, yeah, I wrote her act. I didn't write for the TV show. You I wrote for her stand-up so act. For a year, I would like, go to her house on the weekends and sit at her breakfast table and write jokes for her. Uh, so you finally got to unload all of those domestic goddess jokes you've been doing on stage. <laughs> and I knew nothing about being a, 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 a woman and a parent, I was just guessing, and, <laughs> and she would sit with me, and she, I, I remember she said, I want to do a bit about how it's better to suck dick than kiss ass. <laughs> just go with that. Because if you suck dick, you know, at least you know what you're going to get. But you kiss ass just based on the idea that someone might give you something. <laughs> And, and then that's all she would say. And then I would have to go off and craft that into oh, a, Jesus. A, a, a monologue, which she did on her special. It, it, it was like a great uh, routine that she did. And she was so funny, a billion times funnier than me. And she would give me these philosophies and areas. And then I would flesh it out and sit with her. And then she would make it legitimately she funny. She pull it into Roseanne speak. <laughs> when you were, um, like, were you still doing stand-up as you were writing for people? In the beginning, I was. Because... <laughs> I, I realized something really early, which is all the good comics didn't want to sell jokes because they wanted to be famous so badly. Adam Sandler wasn't going to write you a joke for 50 bucks. Right. He, he knew where he was going, and so he wanted to focus on that. And I thought, this is the hole in the industry. 
this writing jokes for people. Everyone needs jokes. Everyone will pay you for jokes. Uh, if I could be that guy, I could pay my rent because mm-hmm. I also <laughs> had no money, uh, and uh, and that turned out to be the case. It just there was a lot of people. Uh, as soon as they, as soon as you know, people got caught wind of the fact that I could like help them with their acts or with some TV appearance. I, I got a ton of work out of it. Did it get tough to uh, start like like your brain in the very beginning start to kind of split where? Like, you know, you were still trying to come up with your own bits for gigs, and then you'd be like, oh, well, this actually, I could probably get rid of this and give it to, you know, sell to this comic or... Not too often, because I was writing for Roseanne, which was so specific, and Tom Arnold, and and, and for Shanling, it was, you know, he was hosting award shows, so all the jokes would be about music. Yeah. And Gary didn't know that much about modern music at the time, so I would have to, you know, I'd write a joke almost to explain the premise of who was popular. Right. And then he, he would rewrite it. I mean, you could just put it. It feels like, especially, especially with Shandling, you could, you could just sort of give him a few words, and then he would Shandlingize it. Oh, he he could just top anything. But if you basically gave him a, like the premise of something, he would find a way to be much funnier. Did Did you feel that these comics who were pretty much like, I mean, they they were as big as you could get mm-hmm. at, for comics. Did you? Was there any insight that you gained, like? Wow, they're way more insecure than I thought they would be. Or, oh, look, they made it. Everything seems great. I mean, obviously, in Roseanne's case, everything going a little sideways. But uh, you know, mainly, it just showed me that people work their ass off. It's such hard work. I don't think people have any sense of just how much work it is. It's like when I watch The Daily Show. I just think, how is Jon Stewart still standing? <laughs> I've been doing that for so long. That show is so funny. And if you're anal about every joke and every nuance of every night it must cave your brain and Shandling was working so hard even on just writing the Grammys it was such a monumental effort to make it make it uh, you know really strong and stand out from another time somebody else did it yeah and Roseanne too I mean they just people work hard they don't get in that position for any other other reason the Stiller show was um I had I had taken well, I started when I started at MTV in like 94 95 I had stolen from one of the tape closets mm-hmm. We used to have tape closets, mm-hmm. kids. What's a closet? Well, it's a place where tapes store. Okay. Hilarious tapes <laughs> that you they're, they're like they they basically just had all of these you know comp reels for all these different shows, and so I took the one for the Ben Stiller show, which was essentially an internal compilation of you know like a bunch of yeah. s- sketches, and um, I watched the fuck out of that. I mean, it it was that show was so unlike anything else, and and it it bummed me out that it didn't last longer but i guess i don't know i don't know what happened was did a, was it too referential for people what was it i don't know what it was uh, yeah, we you know we did that pilot and and you know peter chernin was the head of fox and he was a big supporter of ben he really got what ben was doing ben had done a show for mtv the year before right uh that was a little bit like uh, a precursor to the Larry Sanders show in the sense that he played a variety show host who was kind of a jerk to everyone who worked with him and then they would cut to these sketches. And uh, and Peter Turner got kicked upstairs to a better job and someone else was brought in to be the head of the television network and we were told on day one, he doesn't get the show at all. <laughs> he hates the Cape Munster sketch. I don't know. The Cape Munster! Yabba dabba doo, yabba dee dabba doo ba dabba. I said, if he doesn't get Kate Munsters, I don't know what to tell you because that's all we got. I mean, that's that's the <laughs> that's tone of this show. And so when we would get notes from the network, I would never take the notes because in my head I thought he doesn't even get Kate Munsters. I can't, Kate Munster. I can't uh, 
listen to someone who doesn't get the joke. I, I mean, these, so these notes are not uh, valid for, for me. Uh, but we were also, we were on at 7.30. We were so sure we were going to get canceled that Ben and I made a series of commercials where he was talking to uh, one of the cast members of 90210, and he was just telling him how that he shouldn't be a guest star in the Ben Stiller show because it clearly was going to get canceled and 60 Minutes was going to kick its ass and Mike Wallace was a, a monster who can't be killed. And, and so we were predicting our cancellation in the promos before the <laughs> Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, it's hard to tell. Ben was you know one of the first people to, to look at those sketches from SCTV and, and what Albert Brooks did and said, what if we had money? Like, what if you could do a parody sketch and actually shoot it in in the exact place where they shot the movie? Right. And he just took it to a whole nother level. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the the style of people like Bob Odenkirk, who who you know was really dominant on that show with his style that kind of uh, was the beginning of what he he did on uh, uh, Mr. Show with with uh, David Cross, who was also there. So there was you know all of these things evolving, but they were all really new, and we were on at seven thirty, right? Uh, and then they moved us to ten thirty at night. So no one ever knew we existed. No one was famous on the show. No one knew who Ben was. So we, we didn't really have a a way to get out there. And there was no internet. So it's funny to talk to people about it nowadays. You would just put a sketch on the internet and that would create the buzz for the show like you right, yeah. key and peel or something. Yeah. But but back then there was no way to reach anybody. <laughs> uh, you just send out mailers of yeah. uh, half inch VHS tapes. Back then <laughs> the internet was like you, you know it was still like weird, you know, lesbian chat rooms and <laughs> you, you know chat rooms of people who who uh or into uh, GI Joes. It was this weird thing you didn't quite understand they, how to navigate AOL, it yeah. yet. The and... AOL chat room. I did my <laughs> well, the fr my first experience ever in a chat room was finding a chat room on AOL in like '94 called TV Fun. I'm like, holy shit! I know fuck tons about television. We'll talk the shit out of television. I go on and it's you know, and I'm like, uh, hey, remember Larry Storch? And then people were like, I'm gonna shove this pipe in your asshole. <laughs> yeah. And then it turned out the TV was a transvestite fun. Uh, oh. chat room and I had no idea yeah. I was throwing out all this TV trivia like throwing out yeah. lines and just getting nothing yeah. back that's why a lot of people were disappointed when TV Funhouse came out yeah because they thought that it, yeah Smigel they just went the other way with it yeah. so that was their payback but I, I mean it's it's you know uh, for for you though it's it's interesting because you keep making show after show that people love and they don't last very long but it, they're still critically acclaimed and people are going this is the best show on television why is this getting canceled how what is the what's the internal struggle with that like i feel like we're doing good work what is happening uh i, I wasn't having that big a struggle about the work because i literally couldn't believe that i wasn't still a dishwasher <laughs> So even if a show went down, I would just think, I can't believe I, I have an apartment and I don't need a roommate. Right. I can't believe I can afford <laughs> valet parking. Right. So I, I just came from a place of being completely broke. So people, you know, I would, I would be really mad and I would rage a, a, against the networks and I, I, I wasn't very political. I didn't know how to do the dance. But I when we would think about what should we do next, I always thought, well, let's just do something else that we think is awesome. I never thought... You need to mainstream yourself or find a way to succeed. It was always about what's the best idea because I, I always felt ahead of the game 
that I wasn't still sitting in my room in high school watching the Merv Griffin show. Like, I'm in show business. I don't care. I got maybe show business is getting canceled after half a season every year. Uh, and so I, I, I was still thrilled every second, even when I was having a nervous breakdown from being canceled. <laughs> Did, was it a weird adjustment to... I mean, this is... I mean, I don't know if... This sounds kind of lame, but... Was it a weird adjustment to then have a, like money and like power and being able to do like is that a weird or for you is it just that nah, same thing head down do your work don't worry about it doesn't matter or did was did that take getting used to? Well, in terms of money, I swear the only adjustment that I ever had was I was writing for Tom and Roseanne. I asked them to pay me eight hundred dollars a week. So after a while of doing a good job, I said, you know, pay me $800 a week. And that's, you know, the, the cost of me for a year is how much is less than what you get paid for one show. Right. Uh, and they cursed me out on the phone. Oh, Both of them on a speakerphone. Who the fuck do you think you are? You don't get paid that kind of money, goddamn motherfucker. And like, they just went crazy uh, on me. It was hysterical. And uh, don't you think Roseanne? Yeah, what are you fucking asshole? It's like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> They're both on the line. But then, the, then they would call back like an hour later. Okay, we'll give you the money. Jesus. <laughs> like, we're, we're coming down off the drugs now. I yeah, think yeah. And then, uh, and that was the change. It was to get $800 a week was the life change. And at the time, I was making $400 a week uh working for comic relief producing benefits for the homeless. All right. So I was I'm making 1200 bucks a week. That is the only adjustment because that led to valet parking. Cuz my car <laughs> kept getting broken into constantly by the improv. I'm like now I can valet and and then that was it. Nothing I have no interests to spend money on. I only buy DVDs and books. So uh, so it none of it of that aspect has ever mattered what uh, in terms of uh, having some control that's that's a whole new thing where you know if you've always failed people are up your ass because they think we better help this guy because he always fails right he his shows never work his movies never make money as soon as you do anything that where it makes money and goes mainstream everybody backs off because they think maybe he knows how to do it oh right and maybe we should listen because it worked last time and at least i can tell people you know i listened to him because it worked last time and <laughs> And that's been the great thing. Because then you could get really creative when everyone gets out of your way. Then you could seek out notes from the studios and the networks because they're trusting you. And then there's a, a better conversation. When you're a failure, <laughs> no one wants to listen to your point of view about it. <laughs> <laughs> who was your, uh, uh, who did you sort of, did you systematically go back and try to meet all the people that you were nerding out over when you were a kid? Like well, when I would meet people I interviewed as a kid, I never, ever told them I interviewed them. That I, 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 it took me years to tell Shanling, I kind of interviewed you when I was 16 years old on the phone. You're in Vegas. Uh, I, I, Seinfeld found out because I let them use a photo of me and him in an article once in the New York Times. Uh, but no, I would never tell anybody. And I remember I was looking through some old photos and I, I interviewed Alan Zweibel, uh, mm -hmm. the great comedy writer who was one of the original writers of Saturday Night Live. And when he left the room, I took pictures of all of his 
memorabilia in his apartment in New York. So I was going through an old roll of film, but it was literally like a stalker. Like all, of his, all of his awards and photos with Chevy Chase and Gilda Radner. Uh, You're just making all the stalkers out there feel justified. See, yeah, I could see? become a Judd Apatow type yeah. if I take pictures of everyone all the time. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel like it. I, did, I thought it would make people respect me less. If they thought I was that kid. no, but then when but then when you're producing films and you have the ability to put people in stuff, you could call Steve Martin and be like, "Hey, Steve Martin, it's Judd. Do you want to be in a thing?" Like you, you have the ability to pretty much set up a meet. You can meet anyone now, and you don't have to apologize for it. So, who did you did you do that? Was there anyone that you hadn't talked to before? Um, that I made a point to just that I must like Steve. Did you ever meet Steve? Steve? I, I we just shot a photograph for Vanity Fair the other day because uh, I'm editing. Uh, a comedy issue of Vanity Fair that's going to come out in oh, December. Really so I shot a photograph with him, and that was one of the greatest moments of my entire life. Uh, and I had done a meeting with him uh, maybe like eight or nine years ago, which was a big, big deal. There's no one really bigger for me than than Steve Martin. And Albert Brooks is in This Is 40. Oh, yeah. Yes. He's great. Now. And so that was a big deal for me because I spent, you know, I spent a lot of time as a kid. In a, I remember I was in a library once. And this is how long ago it was. You know, nothing was easily available. So if you wanted to see the original article that Albert Brooks wrote, uh, which was uh, Albert Brooks' School for Famous Comedians, it was an article he wrote for Esqu for Life magazine or Esquire or something. And I had to go to the library and get out the microfiche. <laughs> you have to get out the microfiche, and then you have, or or if you're listening to a recording, you have to be tethered to a desk with yeah. giant. Earphone cans. Yeah, yeah so it was, a, it was a long road from that to watching all of his movies to thinking, I'm going to write a movie with a great part for him and then try to get him to do it. I'm very, I'm very uh, hesitant to ever think anything is good enough to bother my heroes with. So that was a big step for me to ask Albert. To well, it's scary, movie. too, because you want them to, I mean, and this isn't their problem, it's our problem as fans, but you, you want them to be the perfect image that you have and there's almost uh, and for me it's i'm a little scared to meet some people because i just i don't want to be like oh they're just a guy like that's not yeah. fair of me to expect that of them but i'm still i still can't i can't help it's that it's always better to be a you want to be a friend not a fan you want them to kind of be like hey i know who you are too or i've seen the thing you did as opposed to going hey well, you're again okay yeah. i gotta go yeah i no. want the work to be as good as my it was what i think their best work is right like so to, in order to bother anyone, I have to think I've written something that's like uh, the the quality level of what they've done, and I almost never think I've done that. That's why I don't uh, attempt that too often. People should listen to Comedy Minus One if they never have the oh, yeah, Albert yeah. Brooks have another kooky crazy call on YouTube. I went down to Albert Brooks hole and just watched all of his appearances, like just like the ventriloquism bit where he's just doing a really bad job, right? And just like just kept on going from one to the I next. just I love watching him do. Curly on the Tonight Show, uh, just watching Carson, like watching how hard Carson was laughing, was yeah. just as entertaining to me as watching Albert Brooks. I just interviewed him for that same Vanity Fair that comes out in December, and you know it was great to be able to ask him about all of those those things. And uh, but I also look at those movies. I mean, when you think of the influences that he's had. You know that scene with where he's on the phone and he's high and he's depressed and, and he talks to Bruno Kirby uh, <laughs> uh, in in Modern Romance for I think it's like eight minutes without an edit. <laughs> you could you could you could look at so much of every of what we've done and see wh how that style was an inspiration for so yeah. so much of it. Yeah. 
Well, and, and Albert, I mean, Defending Your Life for me was a movie that when I was in college, I could not get anyone to go see that movie with me because my friends were just college kids who didn't really care about comedy and they didn't understand why that movie was so, yeah. was so important it was marketed. It wasn't really marketed like a Albert Brooks movie. Well, it's also, I mean, like, it, it also wasn't, I wouldn't really call Defending Your Life like teen humor yeah, you know yeah. what i mean like it's it's definitely like grow there's there's like grown up issues and you know yeah. like been being reflective on your life and dealing with fear and anxiety and, yeah. and all that stuff in the most high concept way in the, <laughs> literally the most high concept way and fucking rip torn jesus christ <laughs> um what uh uh we just saw we just saw this is 40 what oh, is that did. what is that coming yeah. out it comes out december 21st coming out december 21st we that saw it on friday yeah that there there were so many things just because uh just because, uh, you know, uh, because of my age that I was like, oh, oh, God, it just it felt was it autobiographical in any way or was well, it? I always say, you know, it's, it's a third uh, based on uh, our lives, a third based on our friends and Paul and a third just made up to make it interesting. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, it, you know, it's a soup. It's a little bit like a novel where, you know, it, none of it actually happened, but it's all very emotionally Accurate. It's everything I'm thinking about, right? And that we're debating, which is you get to a certain age and you think, you know, how'd I get here? How do I feel about it? You, you know, at some point you realize, oh, some of those things I thought I was going to do, I'm never going to do. <laughs> uh, this is my job. How did it go? This is my family. This is my wife. How are we getting along? And how can we make it better? And then, of course, whenever you try to make things better, everything just falls to shit. <laughs> I mean, the effort yeah. to improve, uh, as someone who loves self-improvement and self-help books, uh, almost always leads to, to to chaos. Oh, you like the self-improvement book? I, I, oh, man. I I've read a shit ton. I love them. I, I've read all of them, and I'll, I'll read them again. They're all highlighted and dog-eared. Do you, ever read, uh, do you ever read Goals by Brian Tracy? No. That's a great one. He, But you have to listen to it because he has... Has, his voice is it's it's like an animaniac voice i don't know how else to describe it he's like he's like how far are you willing to go after you've done all that is expected of you like it's the strangest just listening to his voice is the it's it has its own meter so it's the Tolle. it is Tolle has interesting like fun tapes yes because he has he has an accent and he's from so far off lands, and he talks about <laughs> being in the moment, and every once in a while he just giggles at something he says. <laughs> if people could love me with this voice, you'll do fine. <laughs> Antidote for the poison you just drank, Dr. Jones. Uh, that's Has really... it helped you? Has it helped you, all of your self help? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, you know, I went through like, you know, the big life transformation stuff like eight or nine years ago, and, and so, you know, I thought, well, I've spent so many years. Uh, it, that that because when I think when you hit your early thirties, you start you don't think about anything when you're in your twenties, and then when you hit your thirties, you go, oh yeah, shit that I put into my brain actually does come back out, yes, and it gets processed, and I'm I'm not just like here to fuck shit up, you know, like you really have to <laughs> what? Well, Jonah just turned thirty, so yeah. in a year, yeah, thirty was thirty was more my breakdown than forty, I because I I always thought there was a lot of uh, pressure. To go nuts in your twenties. That your twenties were about, okay, this is the free decade to to do things that you shouldn't do and experiment and travel and make awful mistakes with women. And so when <laughs> my twenties ended, I thought, oh, that was it. That was what happened. You can't do that in your fifties. I guess you could. 
Yeah, sure, you could. But then you'd be like the people that you see on Real Sex on HBO, which is, <laughs> are never the people you want to see fucking each other. Yes. Yeah. Creepy swingers clubs. It's, yeah. it's, 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 the they're always in a circle, like 12 couples all having sex, trying to have like simultaneous orgasms. Uh, simultaneous <laughs> orgasms, or they're trying to t- telepathically orgasm. They're concentrating yeah. on each other's but junk. Almost always overweight. That's the one constant. No, I feel like there's some like super tan, skinny tree people, you know, like the hippie, you know. (laughs) That show's not edited in a way that you can masturbate to it. No, No, not in the least. Always to an interview. There's not. Well, but even when it's not, (laughs) (laughs) and the camera is just, it's just like, oh, if you would just come a little higher over the shoulder. I always try to come a little higher over the shoulder. Oh, well, Jonah, well done, sir. Well done. I salute you. (laughs) That joke was hotter than anything I've ever seen on Real Sex. (laughs) I defy anyone to. To jerk off to real sex it is impossible it's like it's like it's like uh it's like mr mr show shitting on the flag bit they have designed that <laughs> yeah, show can't do it. it is impossible it's like the editor knows right when it would get good for <laughs> yeah. you and cuts away at that point almost so, too well so who was in the room when you watched it watched uh oh uh, you mean this, this, this is 40 yes uh jonah was in the room and the, corolla was in the room and, uh, oh, you guys and our girlfriends and our yes, girlfriends for, yeah, yeah chloe and d and deanna and uh how did they respond they were well. They loved it. I mean, they. You know, Chloe's a bit younger than I am, uh, and uh, and so, you know, I, I didn't want to get all like, "This is what happens," you know, <laughs> but uh, this will happen to you in a few years. But, what? but well, like Dee and I, uh, you know, like we just got engaged. Congratulations! She's, thanks. But like, she's turning thirty uh, next month. I just turned thirty, and so it was. A, it was a neat like, huh. Like that's that could so this is you know it was neat seeing that just the the settled and married life. Well, it is. It's scary because I feel like every year older that I get, and it always happens around my birthday. I I really I understand talking heads once in a lifetime ten percent more. Yes, I never true. understood it yeah. when I was a kid. I'm like, oh, that's really funny, and he's you know, oh, yeah, you know, and all the hand motions, and then stop making sense concert, and then but but when you really listen to it, you go, oh yeah, you do. You do just kind of wake up one day and you have this sort of weird like, whoa! Like, how did I get here? How, yeah, it is. It is like the it is like the kind of alternative reality movie yeah. where you're just in your body and there's a per- and then you're in there's your house and you know what does that mean? But that's a great thing I think about movies is that there's a lot of movies I went back that I you know thought I really loved growing up and and understood and then I go back and watch them I go oh that's why there was so much crying because there was emotions at stake it really you know, like you, you're watching the movie you're like why did he just say get lost and be done with that woman it and, really did the movie hit me in a weird place because uh well i mean like paul, paul melissa mccarthy is so i mean fucking it just hurts me how fucking funny she is uh so it was, you know obviously there were there were you know there was there was certainly great riffs in the movie and, the, and there was but, but parts of the movie really made me sad like in a oh Oh, yeah, someday, you know, sometime you might just have to go, yeah, this is it. You know, this Mm -hmm. is it. And we just have such a hunger to always be like, it's never over. We're always, you know, and then every once in a while you kind of go... This is it, you know. Yeah. Like this I just is the life to... I've uh, yeah. chosen. I have to make uh, the most of it, and that's you know that's you know those are the issues that I'm, I'm always fascinated by, whether it was this or funny people. And in a lot of ways, it, it, you know, it's in even forty year old version of just you know tracking time and where am I supposed to d- to be and what was I supposed to have accomplished and the panic that creates, which I always think leads to. A lot of good comedies, the, the panic to make some sort of adjustment is what leads you, leads you to want to you know, to have sex with the drunk woman who crashes the car sure. on the way home. I wonder how many more. I wonder how many of those panics you, 
Like every, is it every decade do you get a panic or is it every five years or does it, does it, as you get older, is it like 10, 20, you know? I think you naturally start letting go and relaxing a little bit. I think it's almost in our DNA. You know, people I, I know who are much older seem to naturally be mellowing out and enjoying being older. Sure, because their brains are filling with estrogen because the chemical levels are switching because they're getting older <laughs> and their, their brain is actually is injecting them with chill the fuck out juice. Yes. How do I get that now? <laughs> well, you have to eat someone's brain. You bottle. have to crack an elderly person's skull over and suck their yeah. tender juices out of their lobes. There's an argument to do that. <laughs> Listen, I do want to do that. Everyone, it's, you'd be doing them a favor, really. Yes. Do you want to be 88, 92 <laughs> years old? See, I w if someone could benefit from my chill out brain juices yeah. when I'm that old, fucking suck it up. I'm fine with that. Well, I always think, you know, what, you know when I'm trying to think of a movie... I always do try to come up with something that I think I haven't seen much of. Yeah. And there are certain types of comedies that, you know, they don't make much anymore. Just about the people and problems and you don't need a villain and you don't need a high concept. It's just life is filled mm. with enough obstacles as it is. Yeah. Any, yeah. any day can give you enough, enough comedy. And, uh, but when, I, when we make them, I'm, I'm, I'm usually not aware uh, that it's such a strong choice. And then a year or two later, I'm like, wow, I did that. What was I thinking? I was really... <laughs> like a year or two after finding people, I'm like, wow, I was really depressed then, I guess. I really was in a weird space. I well, had something that, to say there. That is the most interesting to, thing to me about, about, about doing stand-up or writing or whatever it is, any kind of artistic endeavor. Um, we just had this a long conversation about this when the Wachowskis were on, of just talking about how you sort of just like... Blah, you just kind of throw all this stuff onto whatever your canvas is, and then you go, oh, I guess that's what I think. Like, you yes, really just yeah. don't know the art part of it yep. is sort of processing all that shit. Well, you you know, a lot of people say, uh, you know, I write to figure out why I'm writing it. Yeah. You know, you make a movie to figure out what you're thinking about, and, that, and each movie becomes a little time capsule of the issues you're dealing with at that moment of your life. Yeah. And, uh, and... So you don't even know what the next stage, you know, will be. I, that's why I never think about, you know, adapting a book or whatever, because I'm actually just much more interested in thinking about my own struggle. Well, that's that's a stand-up's point. Like your approach, your films are basically uh, to me, they seem like stand-up driven because they're point of view driven, and they're you're you know you're relating these experiences in a yeah. in a very kind of a in the with I think with the same mechanism that you would have if you were a comic the way you're just sort of telling a story. Yeah, and I think that you you know you have all these things that you're going through and then you think how do I make it crazy funny so people will listen to these ideas but it's actually still entertainment. Right. Yeah. So I usually don't start with a comedic idea, I start with a dramatic idea and then I I think well how, you know what what's funny about this? Oh, I guess it's funny to you know I want to talk about how romance fades. What's the worst example of that? I guess it's Having your wife walk in while you're taking a dump, but just but you're really just on your iPad escaping your life. <laughs> uh, oh, that's, or asking your wife to look at your anus to see if it's a tear yeah. or a hemorrhoid or a worm. That that would get across what happens. Yeah, and, and then it also buys you time in the movie to talk about things that are more serious because you know at certain intervals you're going to try to really tear down the house and you're trying to get the rhythm right between the drama and the Well, comedy. you have to have some humanity to kind of tether it to, to for people to relate to. Otherwise, it's sort of 
then the comedy you're making is like a Zucker Brothers movie, and that's just an entirely yeah. different approach, which is... Well, I love those movies. I mean, when we did Walk Hard, I, it made me really appreciate those movies like like Airplane and, and Blazing Saddles, the, the, all the ones that I thought were the funniest movies ever yeah. made. I mean, that's a... That's a uh, you know, a, a challenge like no other. Like, can I make a silly movie where every joke is the funniest joke ever and I rip the house down for yeah. 88 minutes? It's just, it is a completely different kind of movie than the the, the dramedy movie. Because uh, when we did Walk Hard, we would test it and test it, and, and we were like, you know, anytime a joke doesn't work, the next 10 minutes bombs. So we had to go in and do like reshoots to go, oh no, every joke has to work the entire movie. Oh or fuck, it, that's it, exhausting. It completely caves in. Yeah. Uh, so what they do is is uh, incredible. And, and it is fun every once in a while, you know, uh, to to try to do like just the, the joke-a-thon. I, you know, I was one of the writers on, you know, Mess with the Zohan. Mm -hmm. Just to be around Smigel, Robert Smigel, like someone who is like, Funny at the highest level you've ever seen. I mean, he's you know he's the guy who does a uh, triumph the insult. Yes, yeah. and TV Funhouse. And, and he's in uh, your movie. And and he plays Boris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's something of being around those people who are that good who what just was, can really kill at any moment. What was the brand name he had on his uh, his biking gear? Oh, it, it was like uh, something bastard ale. Or yeah, it was something. an arrogant bastard ale. It was just like the heaviest beer. It was like the, <laughs> I'm surrounded by beer. those bikers. Yeah. Uh, whenever you're you're driving anywhere, there's so many bicyclists out, and they're really mad at you that you're on the road. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and sometimes you see them, and they're in such blind corners where no bicyclist should be, and and they don't care. They're like halfway in the street, and yeah. I, I fear for them. And and it is, anybody, it, they need the bells more than anything. But it's biker. a sim it's a symbiotic relationship of hatred because. My ex-girlfriend's a cyclist, and she rides everywhere, and she's almost gotten hit so many times that it just develops this, like, everyone's unhappy. Yeah, I was I was once bumped <laughs> out of a, a, a bike lane, like, by a car, and, like, the lady saw me, and then I just, I remember just angrily slamming my hand down on her hood and leaving a dent and then getting really scared and just biking away. <laughs> I don't like any activity where I'm... Uh, just exposed to be hit. Yeah. So, uh, when I, I I rode a motorcycle for a very short period when I was in college, and I, I just thought every time I stopped for a light, I thought the guy behind me may not see me. And, this could be it. And and I'm dead. Yeah. And I, I don't get the people that are very comfortable being exposed around big cars. Or how about people just like yeah. whipping in and out of traffic, yeah. where you're just like, oh, yeah. and you know, any it really doesn't take much to just flip your bike on top of yourself, and then they're just yeah. scraping gravel out of your yeah. flesh. I've avoided that. That was that was one that my dad always talked about when I was a kid. He, he had the friend that lost his leg. Right. My dad was, you know, uh, in terms of scaring me, you know, was a lot of the inspiration for Joe Flaherty and Freaks and Geeks. And like, <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend who rode a motorcycle. You know what happened to him? He's got a leg. <laughs> I do that with my kids. I've scared my kids so much about the drugs and, and everything because I just, uh, you like this song? That guy's dead. <laughs> and I just do it all the time. I'm not joking. And uh, and uh, I, it, Well, that generation, yeah, because I, I was definitely, you know, my mother was very overprotective in the... Okay, just make sure you're home by a certain hour. Everything will kill you. Yeah. And uh, and I guess it's just a product of when they grew up. I mean, like, when it really, you don't have to go back too many generations to the world being a sharp, dangerous, poisonous uh, kill planet. Yeah, my uh, my grandfather, he had one eye because of, a like, a moped accident. And so when I brought up the idea of, uh, I want, like, a moped or a scooter, yeah. everyone was like, no, don't even say that. <laughs> don't even bring it up around him. All those in favor say, I oh, no, fuck. Uh, oh, say one eye. what happened? Uh, do you, are you good with the, cause obviously you work with a lot of teams, but you've really, you know, 
I think you've done the thing that a lot of people I would hope would want to do as they achieve success, which is like, hey, I have a group of my friends and we all want to work together and we like working together and we like helping each other. And I don't know. I, I think I think one of the things that people are drawn to just besides the stuff you make is just that it feels like, hey, we're a community of people mm -hmm. that are supporting each other. Yeah, I, that's uh, what makes it fun for me because I do come at it uh, from the point of view of a fan. So when I meet somebody that seems really talented, I just want to be around them. It doesn't matter if they're like a child. I just think, oh my God, that Seth Rogen guy is the funniest guy ever. Yeah. I'd love to do a bunch of things with him. And and then, then you meet more people and then the group gets bigger and bigger and every time you start a project you think, which of these people fit into this idea? You yeah. can't force them in if it doesn't work, but with the new movie I thought, oh, I could put Charlene Yee in this movie and she's so funny, it'd be great to to do something that shows people how hilarious she is. And I had just worked with Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd, and, and I was thrilled to get Jason Siegel in. So, But then there's like a limit, like, okay, that's that's all this can hold, right. this project. And you feel bad, like, oh, I wish I could have had Jonah in this. I wish I could have Thank you. I thought the same thing this. about myself. No, I, it's not. <laughs> oh, Jonah Hill? I know. Yeah. Some uh, people have the I same names as other people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, but I, I mean, that's my favorite part, is when everyone is having fun together. Uh, you know, as a kid who like grew up like in a divorced house, like the idea of like creating these families has always been the part that's uh, attracted me the most. Oh, that's nice. I like that. I'm trying to do that with these jerks. Yeah. 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 Well, if you call us jerks all the time like that, it really. Well, that's a family. okay. You're out. You're out of the family. <laughs> you're fucking out of the family now. No Thanksgiving. No uh, movie. But that's that is a fun part about watching even just the extertiary movies that you just are a producer on, like um, Sarah Marshall, which I think is a great breakup movie. Um, and uh, like just like seeing kind of your influence around, and then the, those people, like probably from like the people they met on your productions, bringing them into their productions, and then yeah, just kind of that spider web. And it also spins it's kind from, of a pyramid like, scheme. Yeah, and it spins a little bit like from like Stiller's movies or Adam McKay's movies, and everyone kind of <laughs> notices, oh, he used that person. That person's fun. Let's give them a bigger part in this one. Yeah, I remember I met Jack McBrayer on uh, Talladega Nights. And and we, I think it, it was right before Thirty Rock, and it was something that Adam knew, and we we all thought that guy's the funniest guy I've ever seen. Yeah. And then so you know we would say, it's a Stoller. Oh, you got to use Jack and uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall. And then it just kind of it just spins around like that. Yeah. Have you ever seen Jack uh, do improv? Have you ever seen any of the I.O. His, shows? No. Two man improv. No, Fucking it's really it's great. His his he is one. I mean, like seeing some of those guys work together. You know, just. Uh, him and the Scott Adsits of the world, yeah. and just like mm -hmm. watching those guys improvise together, you're like, oh, oh, this is what improv is supposed to yes. be. <laughs> it's not just being like, hey, I'll have a snappy comeback for anything. It's like they're actually creating amazing improv together. Yeah. Jack and Paul Shear have like a really good two man team. It's really good. Well, it's a great time, I think, in comedy now. I I, I do think uh, things are evolving where there's just places for people to learn how to do it both in the coffee houses and comedy clubs and improv places and there's been a lot of good movies made which is leading to more movies and more opportunities it really does feel like a golden era mm -hmm. right now for comedy are you doing any digital are you doing any like uh, any any web stuff are there any projects that aren't maybe a whole movie but like oh this will be fun to fuck around with well you know i'm one of the partners on uh funnier die i've heard of it i, I haven't uh, fully uh you know, created things just for that platform. I'm just beginning to learn about the whole world of uh, the 12-minute television shows and uh, <laughs> you know how they do it on uh, 
an adult uh, swim. An adult swim, uh, and so hopefully we'll think of something uh, for that. But I haven't gone for it yet. But I like the idea of low pressure. You know, I I hadn't done TV. Uh, in a long time. So when I met Lena Dunham, I thought, well, it's worth doing this show because she is such a, an amazingly talented, nice person. Yeah. Uh, and that has woken me up to the possibilities of ongoing characters and also things that are just weird. Like a movie needs to have a resolution. You have to kind of feel okay at the end for the kinds of movies we make. But I love that an episode of Girls could just end really down. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what, when I was at the Larry Sanders show, I mean, Gary could do that. It, you could end on these really weird notes. And uh, it's definitely reminded me that you can't do some of these things in movies and that you have to go to television or to digital to, to get some colors. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the digital stuff is, there's much more of a sketch element to it where it's sort of a single idea that you're getting across in a, in a, in a, you know, in a compact parcel of time. But the thing that I, the thing that I've learned the most just doing it for a while is that people look at it and they go, Oh, well it's like television or movies cause it's a visual medium. And you're like, no, because the thing that makes the ecosystem work is that you, people have to share the thing that they're seeing in order yeah. for it to, to become anything. Yeah. And so if there's not an element in there of something special that makes people go, Holy fuck! I have to pass this around right now. Then a hundred views, you know. Yeah. So it's just I think it's a I think it's a different of enough of a philosophical approach, and I think that's why a lot of people f don't do well at it. They're yeah. so like, oh, let's put TV on the internet. Like, well, it's sort of. Yeah, it is, it is. It is. It uh, is tricky. We we notice that just when we make funny things just to promote our movies, like, wow, no one passed that around. Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly something will explode. You know, oh my, the bridesmaids bloopers for some reason have <laughs> exploded in a way we never thought possible. And something we would work so hard on just no one would watch. Yeah, it. it's usually the way it works. If uh, if you're if someone says make a viral video, it's like someone going, well, write a hit song. Yeah. Was Bri what was how, how was bridesmaid a t a, made a tough movie to get across the finish line or was it? Uh, well. The studio always wanted to make Bridesmaids. It was really more about me and uh, Kristen and Annie Mumolo, um thinking it was ready, the, that the script was ready. Uh, they always thought it was a commercial idea at the studio. and so. But they worked on that script for four or five years before we made it. But it wasn't because... I mean, we probably could have gotten it made with, a, with an earlier draft. It just felt like, this is a great idea. We have to do this correctly and and Kristen only had summers to work on it because she was so busy at SNL sure. she couldn't accomplish too much during the year so that expanded how long it took to make but it was hard it was really hard work that wasn't you know an effortless uh, banging out of a, of a draft because in a way Kristen Wiig was creating her film persona so you have this person who's really hysterical playing these insane characters and then you're thinking, how can I make her equally as funny where she doesn't get to do any of that? Yeah, you know? I don't really I don't I don't think most people have much of a sense of who she is as a person. Yes. Because she just fucking disappears. She's one of those she's one of those sketch performers <coughs> where no matter then Will Farrell had this too, where no matter where they are in a scene, you just your your head follows them. Because yeah. yeah. they're just so they're in it. Yeah, and that's a hard thing. If you look at the history of Saturday Night Live or any of the sketch shows, very few people have figured out who they are to be a movie star. 
Right. And so, you know, there are people who came off the show, like Bill Murray or Sandler, who understood, you know, what their persona was enough to make a transition. But there were so many people who were insanely funny, but you never got to know them as people. Dana, you know? like uh, Dana didn't really play just a guy very often. It's, I mean, I think, you know, people have there's so many different skill sets and you're developing a different skill set on a sketch show. So you're so like with Kristen, like you're starting from scratch, like. Okay, I'm ne I'm not doing anything that makes me the, the the woman with the tiny hands or the target lady. I'm not <laughs> you know, doing any of that. So now, what is funny about me? How would I get like giant laugh? Right. Uh, in a movie like this, where it's heartfelt and sincere, uh, but we do want it to be funny because people know that she's one of the funniest people who ever lived. So it, it can't not be funny. That's why I think it's always best to play the friend. The friend, the friend yes. roles, <laughs> one dimensional. You come in, you get to be out, you know, like you get to fuck around more, and there's no pressure on your shoulders to carry anything. Yeah, it's like being the middle. You're a act. bonus. You're a bonus. You're a middle act. You're kind yeah. of a middle act. Yeah, you're kind of a middle yeah, act. You're, you're a bonus, and it says low stakes. You come in like. Well, that was part of the challenge of This Is Forty is that Leslie, uh, my wife Leslie Mann and Paul Rudd, they were the friends in Knocked Up, so they could come in and just kill, you know, in half a dozen scenes. And then when you say, okay, now I'm going to make a movie just about them, then you're saying, okay, so now I have to go much deeper. I want to be as funny as last time, but, but all the rules have changed uh, to do a feature that's about them at the center. Do you have an opinion in this movie on who you think is right or wrong, or do you just sort of put it out there and then just go, well, this is... These are these people's lives. You decide. Do you have an internal thing of like, well, it's really more his fault? Uh, well, when we make the movies, you know, how they get written is I'll have, you know, an idea. So I'll say to Leslie, you know, I was thinking maybe we could do something about what's going on now. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then I'll say maybe it all like leads to a birthday party. Like they both turn 40 during the same week and. And they kind of have a little kind of meltdown in that time period. Maybe that would be fun to watch. In the beginning, I used to say it was like the movie Falling Down with a couple. <laughs> um, and, and so I would, I would talk to Leslie about, like, she wouldn't be reading pages, but I would talk to her about scenes, and then she would say, you know what you should do? Is a scene where, and then she would pitch me the scene where Pete does something awful. Yeah, and so slowly it would be my point of view and Leslie's point of view, and she would just balance it out if she ever thought, you know, there was a lot of moments when we were making the movie where she's like, Rudd is 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 playing it like way too much of a nice guy. He's got to be a little <laughs> bit more of a dick, or this movie doesn't work. That's why there's literally a scene where. She says, why are you such a dick? He goes, I am a dick. I love that scene. <laughs> yeah. I love that scene. <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm a nice guy when I'm not. <laughs> because you want it to represent equally both of their point of views and, uh, and to show that they both have problems. They both have wounds. And they, how they behave with each other is based on how they were treated by their parents. Well, yeah, I mean, to, to me, Rudd's character is still a man-child who doesn't want to grow up despite having a 13 and an 8-year-old daughter. And Leslie's buckling from the pressure of trying to keep a family together and it's yeah. just like and then they both but then they both have the crisis at the same time yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know i think there's a lot of couples like that where women feel like they're just trying to make everything work and their husbands are busy and spaced out and they just want to shut down and they want and 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 women want a partner in it and guys literally just want to go in the bathroom and play words with friends and get a break. Right. Uh, and, and that, and there's a real clash there of, of men just thinking it'll be fine. 
It'll be fine. And a woman yeah. going, no, it won't be fine if we don't do A, B, and C. And then you get it's, – it's very much a clash of personality styles. You know, some people really think they can make things better by just, like, making a list and, and saying, well, this is how we'll raise the kids and this is how we'll deal with vaccinations and this is how we'll deal with this. And if you disagree on that list or how – to approach it, you could be at war over everything all day long. Right. Well, especially when uh, so much of your lives, I mean, you know, I I don't have any kids, but I just, I can't imagine the pressure that that sort of, because then you're really responsible for other people living. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, And you think about it all day long. And you cannot be selfish in that case. And I'm sure I would imagine that as you start to get older, parts of you are like, I want to be fucking selfish. I just want to be selfish for a minute. Like I used to be yeah. able to be selfish. Well, you don't want to be worried about somebody else all the time. That is why a man is in the bathroom. <laughs> because you do care, but you want a break in a, in a different way. And you, for instance, in the movie, they fight about Western versus Eastern medicine. And that seems like, oh, maybe it's not the biggest thing in the world. But if, as a person, you think, I believe in Western medicine, give me the antibiotics, give me whatever kills the bad thing in your body, then mm-hmm. that's, you know, you, that's a strong position. But if, if, if your wife thinks, no, I believe in herbs, and I know that there's no uh, studies that prove they work, but I have a, <laughs> a female instinct that that will heal our children, and it shouldn't be about killing disease, it should be about supporting the body so the body can prevent disease. I mean, you could fight about that for a thousand hours. And so, and and in, in a relationship, you've got two hundred of those that you have to have a you have to have your position, and then you have to decide which ones am I going to give in on. Right? Is this the one to give in on? If I, uh, you know, we, we've had that. Like if, if our kid has an earache and I want to give antibiotics, and she wants to go off dairy, someone's <laughs> got to give in. We ain't doing both. But uh, it's, <laughs> but in that instance, it sounds like you're saying that 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 the Eastern medicine is a little less sensible than the well, antibiotics. Well, I kind of do. Like I'll get acupuncture and stuff, but I lean Western. And the reason why I lean Western is like if I ever get like a terrible disease, I don't want to have a headspace like. I don't believe in medicine. Right. I want to go like, I've convinced myself my whole life it'll work so I could be happy believing the doctor's point of view will work. Right. If I go Eastern now, when they like tell me I have something horrible, I, I mean, then I'll be like, uh, yeah, that would melt me down. I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I want to believe that they know what they're doing. Yeah. I don't want to think like, all Western medicine is bad and we should only like have a tablet of this plant. Uh, <laughs> but the truth is the plant might work better. I'm not saying it won't. You know, That's why you get kind of caught in the middle. But it probably won't. But who knows? Who knows? <laughs> and are you getting the plant that you think that you're getting? Because they could say, like, here's this beautiful uh, uh, valerian root. And, mm-hmm. But really, it could just be like some Chinese guy just ripping down any piece of crap plant and chucking it in Oil a jar. of the snake. Yeah. Exactly. You don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I... I... <laughs> I guess I'm I'm somewhat skeptical of all of it, like all of it, yeah. because I feel like, you know, big pharmaceutical companies have so much to gain. And so, you know, of course, they want to keep you on medicine because it's a you know multi-billion dollar a year industry. But then Eastern medicine is like, well, there's not really any regulatory yeah. committee. It's yeah. like, well, here you go. All right. It's a lot of trust. There's, yeah. And their offices aren't nearly as nice. The offices, they're usually like apartments, <laughs> and they sleep behind the dividing yeah. shade sure. with, yeah. the, with the, the Chinese cranium. characters on it. <laughs> oh, we've done all of that. We've done cranial massages. Yes. A, 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 a cranial, a, a sacro-cranial massage that you know where people just like give you the softest massage on the membranes of your skull mm-hmm. to make you better. Yep. Hmm. 
They, uh, there's a great, there's a museum somewhere in the country called the uh, Museum of Questionable Medical Devices. Yeah. And it's just all of the, like, the quackery from the early 20th century of, like, yeah. oh, the electrodes and then these crazy things. And then, you know, all the massage, like you said, the massage devices. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of what marriage is about, is that, uh, as you'll find out. Because it, it is a giant negotiation over all of these things. Do we want our kid to go to a school that's really, like, hard on them scholastically? Or do we want, like, a, a trippy hippie school that's really loose and non-competitive? <laughs> and, and you're like, I can't believe I have to, like, agree with somebody I feel on like all of these things. Why can't I just win everything? Pretty yeah. much anything you do is going to fuck a kid up in some way. Yeah. They're going to find a way to get fucked up by and it. And here's the weirdest part when you're a parent. The part of, of them that's fucked up may take them down, but it also might be their motivator sure. for everything they accomplish in their yeah, life. Sure. So much of what we accomplish is a result of pain. Of course, you know? you, you you even said it. You said you you grew up in a in a home, like you moved around a lot, and you kind of like there was sort of a broken home element. So now you've created this family. Yeah. And maybe that wouldn't have happened if you know if you had the perfect family when or you were growing up. Maybe I would have become a drug addict. Maybe you would have become a drug addict. I mean, so you can't even say that a, a perfectly happy childhood will work. Uh, I remember Loudon Wainwright. I was talking to Loudon Wainwright about schools and oh, this school's supposed to be good for the arts, and and he just said, "Whatever happened to art coming from pain?" And, <laughs> and, and that you know that is. Uh, that's that's the funny part about it. And also, I've seen a lot of kids who have a really bad period in their lives where they just have all sorts of problems, and then they pull out and kick ass. Yeah. yeah. And so you might think in that moment, like, oh, that kid's doomed. But maybe that's the, the kind of great defining turn in their yeah. life. Uh, it's like Russell Brand in a way. You're like, when you, when you ask Russell Brand, like, why did you stop doing drugs? Uh, and he, he said, because my career wasn't going well enough. <laughs> and so anything can motivate anything at any moment. Well, yeah, I mean, that was that that was one of the reasons why I gave up the booze almost 10 years ago. I was like, oh, I'm not really working that much and I'm fat. <laughs> and then, and then of course, and then after you quit for a while in retrospect, you're like, oh, there were a million other problems I wasn't even aware of. Like, I, I actually... I, I wrote a, a kind of a self-help book for nerdy brain people. And one of the things that I and, and the lesson that I drew from that was like, if you need to start with your own vanity to try to pull out of something, then absolutely do it. Like it then totally because you will gravitate toward that because, you know, so many of us have such unstoppable egos yeah. that if that's the thing that makes you stop and reflect, then fucking great. It's the only thing that makes me consider not drinking. Every time I just look at my belly, I'm like, ugh. Really got to cut back the booze, <laughs> not for any other thing. <laughs> the one thing I slowly realize is that uh, in my uh, relationship with Leslie, that I'm wrong on almost everything, and it takes you, you to really let your ego uh, disappear for a moment to realize how many things you're fighting for that you're completely wrong about. Yeah, uh, it's, it's shocking how long that list is, and how many years you will fight on an issue, and then one day you just kind of very quietly just think, oh. <laughs> Can I tell her she's right, or I'll just slowly drop it? We are biologically designed to fight, just to fight to protect our points of view, regardless of what the truth is. I, I read that that there, that was a big study about uh, politics. It, yes, it's really hard to get people to change their view, regardless of, of evidence. Poli yeah. Politics or religion or any core belief that people have, no matter like you, you could say like you could have a tape 
of someone like ascending from the clouds being like, hi, I'm Christ. I've come, I came back again like three times and no one gave a shit. Uh, here's proof of that as in exhibit A. And people would be like, no, because yeah. Christ would come in on an angle. Like they would find a way. Well, everyone, everyone's reactionary first off. You know, the first thing is like just to be like, no, because, and then you, I, I don't know why. No. So I'm sorry. Let's, let's get the couch you want. Yeah. <laughs> It is. It, I think it is trying to evolve to break down that immediate rejection of things. Yeah. Where you go, nope. Oh, fuck. Well, that's the. I mean, that's the thing in in relationships is you're trying to retrain your brain to not have fixed points of view about everything. Right. Like, can you actually listen to your spouse when they are trying to present some argument for something? Can you drop the fact that in your head you think you already know everything about every subject <laughs> and you're actually waiting for them to stop talking so you can just present the proper position? Of course. Uh, and that is, <laughs> yeah. that's the tricky part. Can you actually be open for real? Right. Uh, and, and, and that's what I like about the movie is it really is about people who haven't cracked that yet and they do go at each other really hard because they just haven't figured out all of their communication skills. It's so hard. I mean, I, I really, I think, you know, I equate getting old with inflexibility and the you know like the less flexible you are and it starts very simply where it's for you know where I, I felt like i feel like for me a lot of it's a ah, i don't the fucking new music now start, like i'm already becoming inflexible about art like i think it all starts with art when you're inflexible sure. about your art then it just goes down it just goes downhill from there well, that's the whole reason why i had the the had graham parker and the rumor in the movie <laughs> Because in the movie, Paul Rudd has his own record label, and he only releases music from the 70s and 80s of all of these artists he thinks should still be famous. Right. That, that he looks up to. But he doesn't listen to new music anymore. He doesn't, he, he's the guy that didn't sign Arcade Fire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we all get to that point where we just stop listening to new music. Our heads are full. And I have had a really weird thing lately uh, where suddenly when I hear a lot of classic rock, I get the feeling that I've never heard it before. Like I'm enjoying it as if I haven't heard Stairway to Heaven 300 times. Mm -hmm. And it's been happening over the last like four or five months. A song will come on, some obscure Led Zeppelin song, and I will have a religious experience. <laughs> <laughs> as if I've never heard it. And, yeah. I, and I've heard it to the point of like a year ago hating all of that music. But for some reason, my whole brain just refreshed on it you're starting to you're understanding it in a way or you're seeing something the message yeah. like oh my god <laughs> just like the like talking head song oh of course yeah. that's what he's trying to say Jimmy page is god <laughs> <laughs> i thought everyone was fucking i didn't get it before but now yeah. but although there are some things today where i i just don't think i'll ever be like oh my god you know um I, they, I totally get the jonas brothers now like i don't think i'll ever have that moment of of clarity i hope not if I did, will you please suck my brain juices out? <laughs> yes, that would be the time. And retain your own That's youth. how you know. Um, is there anything else you want to promote or talk about before we let you go? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, well, mainly this is 40 come December 21st. I'm excited for people to see that. I think uh, they'll like it. And uh, Girls starts in January. Excellent. That's a great uh, show. On HBO. And, uh, and that's really what's that's all that's happening. You know, it's hard to get... People to go to the movies this day. I mean, because you know we're compete, competing against you know, The Hobbit and Django Unchained, and <laughs> you, you know there has to be like a place uh, in the movies for you know human uh, 
Human hard comedies. Yeah. <laughs> is there uh, is there uh, any any Anchorman two business going on? Anchorman two is going to start shooting in March. Fucking Adam sweet. McKay and Will Ferrell just uh, wrote the draft, and Adam McKay uh, is going to direct uh, as always, and it's so funny. They really just kicked the shit out of it. I, I, I you know the the bar is so high, and you know, when we did the first one, we reshot we reshot. The entire A story, like the main story. Oh, fuck. We reshot all the stuff with the bear. <laughs> uh, uh, there was a whole other story that was so crazy. And it really made us laugh. And we put it out. There's a DVD yeah. that has the, the Ron Burgundy, The Legend Continues. And we made a whole other movie out of all of the story that we removed from the first one. So it's really tricky to make something that's so, uh, you know, silly and absurd. Like, how much should it track? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, 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 is the, what is the line for this? So in starting again, it was funny to, to have those talks with them. Like, what, what are the rules for Anchorman? <laughs> they watched it again, and they were like, this movie's really sloppy, the first one. How do you, how do, you do another one like this? Uh, you can't fake that. You can't fake, the, you can't fake that. It has to work emotionally, and it has to capture a certain spirit, and this has to have, have a, a certain energy. But they wrote something that is... That's good. So weird and it's so e- funny. It's even That's more awesome. of a challenge because when 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 Anchorman first came out, there hadn't been an Anchorman yet. So you get to surprise people with these characters. Yeah. And so how do you, you know, when people are coming in with like, this is going to be the single greatest cinematic yeah, comedy yeah. experience I've ever had. Like, how do you fucking? You can't think about it. You just have to see if you can make yourself giggle alone in a room. Is that is that, the, is that is that is that is that the test? Is that how you know you're hitting the right spot? Sometimes I feel like if I laugh too hard at something that I write, it's never going to work because it's too inside for me. I think, I think it's all about. At some point, as soon as you decide you're going to make anything, you just have to think. I'm going to shut the world out and see if this amuses me, and we'll see if, if it's uh, as good as it needs to be. We'll find out in six or seven months. But the, the idea of worrying about it only hurts your ability to do it. So yeah. you just have to say, is it funny if Ron, Ron Burgundy's in this situation? And like, man, that seems crazy. That's funny. <laughs> and, and that's the only test of it. You are the godfather of so many. Di- I, 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 do a, uh, I do a bowling show on the, on the, on the YouTubes, mm-hmm. which is where we have like, you know, we bowled against the cast yeah. of Mad Men and the yeah. cast of Walking Dead. And you have so many teams that I like. <laughs> I want an Anchorman team. I want a yeah. Freaks and Geeks team. That's I want right. a Bridesmaids. Like you're you're basically an entire fucking league. If I could get of, those people to bowl of bowling teams that I want. Are you a serious exploit. bowler? Maybe. Yes, you are. he is. You are. So when I was a kid, I, I my best friend uh, Ronald Garner, my other best friend Kevin Weltman, we we decided to bowl for money. And like back then, you know, we we bowled for like a couple hundred bucks each, and like. 10th or 11th grade. Oh, shit. And, and then I was the only one who quietly took a bowling lesson. <laughs> no one even thought you could take a bowling lesson. But there was always a guy at our local Syosset, uh, uh, Woodbury Lanes, like, uh, uh, always had on the, the wall, Big Al, bowling lessons with Big Al. Right. And he had his, you know, 300 game card yeah. framed. Yeah. And, and I actually went and took a lesson and kicked their asses. Like, oh, you can learn how to do this from a professional. Someone's right. got the bowling gene, <laughs> Judd. Uh, yes, well, hopefully one of these days I'll be able to convince you to come out and, and dust off the old bowling. I'm going to bring uh, the Celtic Pride cast. <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> we could just do a whole season of just yeah. of all the kids movies. from heavyweights. We, we have heavyweights coming out December 11th on Blu-ray. We, we, we spent like four months making all these documentaries. We went and interviewed all the kids. Oh, we wow. went uh, out of our way. So uh, for those of you waiting uh, for heavyweights... 
that's coming out. We could do December. heavyweights. We could do uh, Stiller and Odenkirk and Janine and Andy Dick. Right. Yeah, yeah. Andy Dick might be in a bowling center right now. He Who fucking knows? <laughs> Who knows? He could be anywhere. Where he is. Uh, well, it's good to see you, man. Thanks so much it for coming on, coming on the band. show. Pleasure to enjoy this uh, incredibly cold room with you. Yes, that's <laughs> yes. right. Well, it's like a casino. We yes. try to block out <laughs> yeah. what time it is and, and the temperature. Right. Yeah. Not the... The warmth of our yeah, no, you guys were warm. You the know, first year it was very warm, and we gave people snuggies and we fed them turkey dinners, yeah. and then we just we felt that the energy was, was just not much, yeah. what we needed it to be. Uh, all right, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Blah. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST.